especially on behalf of the work of Acre Gospel Mission, we want to thank you for all the in, uh, input, support, and all that the Lifeboat had meant, has meant to us over many years. Audrey and I have been with uh, Acre Gospel Mission for 59 years now. I, I, I must have been in short trousers when I joined the mission, but uh, we're 59 years with Acre Gospel Mission, and we thank God as we look back over the years, uh, the people who have supported us. The Bible reminds us in Acts chapter 9, verse 25, that the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, verse 25 says, Then they took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. It was at Damascus. The Apostle Paul was escaping from the city, but he needed people who would hold the ropes so that he could get down the wall. We don't know how many there were. We don't know who they were. But we do know that in that basket was the greatest Christian that ever lived. He would affect the uttermost ends of the earth. And those people that night supporting Paul, they didn't know the potential of that night. And likewise, we want to thank the many rope holders over the years who have stood by the work of the mission and uh, serving the Lord. It's together we're serving him. And so on behalf of Acre Gospel Mission, I want to thank you tonight most sincerely. Our Bible reading this evening comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1, and we're reading at verse 13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you but was let, that is, but was hindered hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And amen, God always blesses to us the reading of his sacred word. Many years ago, a young couple, I say a young couple, both of them 29 years of age, they were five years married, had a very uh, prosperous-looking future, Fred, owned his own business, and Ina was uh, very busy in the work of the church. However, the call of God came upon their lives, and Fred gave up the business, turned his back on what might have looked like a bright future, humanly speaking, and went into training to serve the Lord. On the night before they left for Brazil, Fred and Ina, as they bade farewell to the church on the Cassidy Road, Ina Orr stood and she sang these words. O Lord, this world is lost in sin, and few there are who care, many of whom profess your name, no, no burden will help to bear. We need a passion, Lord, for souls to bring the lost back to thee. Our hearts must be stirred until all have heard at least once of Calvary. And then she sang, let me burn out for thee, dear Lord. 
burn and wear out for thee. Don't let me rust or my life be a hindrance, my God, to thee. Take me and all I have, dear Lord, and get me so close to thee till I feel the throb of the great heart of God. And my life burns out for thee. When Ainoor sang those words, she left the next day for Brazil. The ship in those days, the voyage, took six weeks to get to Brazil. So that took them to the end of April. When they got to the city of Manaus, the capital of the Amazon, they needed to go to Boca do Acre to meet with Molly Harvey. There were no flights available, so they had to go by river steamer. Aboard the river steamer, Ina Orr became ill after a meal one day, and in spite of all that Fred would do, the fever got worse. As a matter of fact, Fred was on his knees at the, the bunk of the little cabin on the boat, praying every day that God would touch his wife. But the girl who sang, let me burn out for thee, dear Lord, let me burn out for thee, did burn out. Burned out with a fever on the 4th of June that year, not six weeks in the country. And yet her death, as she burned with fever that Friday night, Fred was on his knees and the last words Ina spoke were, Fred, go and do the Lord's work. I'm going to sleep. She entered into the sleep of death that night and was buried the next morning. But her death was the seed, the key, that opened the gospel to the town of Labria. Until that date, no missionary had ever gone to Labria. The Italian bishop of the town had written the history of the town, in which he had written these words, No evangelical Protestant has ever come to Labria. They arrived that day, and one of them was in a coffin. Fred Orr returned in August of that year to seek a piece of land, but there was a lot of opposition from the Italian bishop, and no one would give him land except an old Syrian. An old Syrian said, this man, he's come from far, but he belongs to our town because his wife is buried here, and I'm going to give to him an acre of ground. And so on that acre of ground, not only did the mission build a house, but that house became... The church, the large veranda, Audrey and I have lived in that house. Today that house is there, but now a large church is beside that house. And not too long ago I was there for anniversary services, and the church was absolutely packed. When I looked on the large multitude of people, I'm speaking of a church that holds over 300 people, and the church was packed. People were standing out on the street, and the school building across the road that was started by the church it also was packed, perhaps up to 600 people. And all because a girl prayed, let me burn out for thee, dear Lord, and she did. On the 4th of June every year, they have an anniversary service for the life and call of Ina Orr. And the church is too small, so they hold it out in the tropical open air and sometimes up to 2,500 people attend that meeting. I say that this evening because the passion of the heart of Ina Orr, I feel, is reflected in the words of the Apostle Paul 
when he spoke with a passion and said, I am a debtor. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. I am a debtor both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. So much as in me is, I am ready. Ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. In that reading that we've just quoted this evening, you will find that the Apostle Paul three times said, I am. He was declaring who he was and what he was. As I've already mentioned this evening, the Apostle Paul was not only the greatest missionary or the greatest Christian that ever lived, he was the greatest missionary, I feel, that ever lived. Why, the Apostle Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament, 12 or 13 letters of the New Testament, all of them missionary letters, and all of them written to missionaries or missionary churches. He had a passion for mission. And I say that this evening because for this missionary-minded church, it is not the church, my friend, it is the heart of every believer. Could you sing or say tonight, give me a passion, Lord, for souls? And let me burn out for thee. The Apostle Paul was saying that. Let me, on those three statements of the Apostle Paul, hang the following thoughts. When the Apostle Paul said, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, he was indicating that he was faithful to the obligations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He felt there was an obligation upon him. As a matter of fact, writing to the Corinthians, he would later say that he was constrained by the love of God. The love of God constraineth me. Earlier in this chapter, he indicates to us why he felt that debt. In the opening verse, he said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant there is the word bondservant. It is told in Exodus chapter 21 what a bondservant was. A bondservant is a man or woman who had been bought by his or her owner. A price had been paid. But after seven years of serving that master, the servant had the right to go out free. But a bondservant is one who would say, I will not go out free. I will serve my master. I love my family. And that man, woman, was taken to the door and a knob was put through the earlobe so that for the rest of his life he indicated that he was a bondservant. He belonged to his master and he was serving his master out of love. He was surrendered to his master. My friend, can I say this evening... That should be the case for every Christian. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 21. Know ye not that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. My friend, you're a Christian this evening. You're not only saved and forgiven, but you belong. You belong, body, soul, spirit, to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. He redeemed us. He bought us. And says the Apostle Paul, I am a debtor. Oftentimes, 
especially in the third world that used to be here in our country, we'd see many people begging. Sometimes in Brazil, you'd see them all sorts of deformities. And you can't help but be constrained to put your hand in your pocket and give them a note or give them something to help them. But when you do that, you are not paying a debt. You're doing something out of charity. A debtor, you know what a debtor is. It happens when a man drives up to the house in a BMW. He's got a pinstripe suit on and he comes and knocks the door with authority. And when you open the door, he'll say to you, your bill's not paid. I've come to collect the money. You're in debt. My friend, can I say that's exactly how it is with Jesus Christ? And when the Apostle Paul was saying these words, I am a debtor. Listen, he was a debtor to the Lord that was above him. I belong to him. My service for Christ, Paul's service for Christ, did not save him. But he was a debtor to the one who loved him and shed his blood and bought him. And Paul wanted to live for Jesus. A little limerick says, I, I cannot work my soul to save, for that my Lord is done. But, but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. And I thank God that over the years we've worked with colleagues who've been totally sold out, surrendered to Jesus Christ. And why? Because they had obligation of a debt of love to Jesus. I ask you this evening, young person, older person, do you feel that debt of love? I say that this evening because William Borden, William Borden was born into a very rich, wealthy home in Chicago. He was not only wealthy, he was intellectual. He was admitted into Yale, where he was to study law. But God met him in his life, and he was transformed by the mighty power of God, and he was a Christian. And he went to a meeting in Tennessee to hear a missionary from China appealing for people who go to China and witness to Muslims, Muslims for Christ. William Borden, so rich, so intellectual, he not only turned his back on the university education and gave away to missions the fortune that he, he had, but he surrendered to go to China. And the last at 28 years of age on, en route to China, he got meningitis and died, 28 years of age. He wrote those words on a piece of paper that were found below his pillow. And on that note, he had simply written these words, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. My friend, I wonder, can you, in your Christian life to this day, say, there's been no reserve, no retreat, no regret. The Apostle Paul, I say to you this evening, he was a debtor to the Lord above him. Not only because of the ministry given to him, whereby he would take the gospel into every part of the Roman Empire, 
But he did it, my friend. The ministry that he did was given to him because of the miracle that happened in him. The miracle that happened in him. And what a miracle it was for the Apostle Paul. Why, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, he says those words almost with amazement. For, for to me, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor, and injurious to the church of Jesus Christ, but I did it all in ignorance and unbelief. But the grace and mercy of our God with love, why it came to him and transformed him. I know that the Apostle Paul had an amazing conversion, but can I say, my friend, every conversion is an amazing one. Every conversion is a miracle. That day that you were born again, it took a miracle of God's grace to bring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That was a miracle. John chapter 5 and verse 41 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but he has passed from death unto life. That's a miracle. And my friend, if, if you're here this evening and you've been a recipient of that, mercy, that miracle, You've been changed, a new creature in Jesus Christ. Don't you feel that you owe a debt of gratitude to the Lord who is above you? I say that this evening. From our hearts. When I was 18 years of age, I was out one day with a group of young people enjoying ourselves as young people do. A group of us had gone up the Antrim coast and... Uh, it was a July day, beautiful day that it was. And when we got to Port Rush, the tide was in and the, the blue pool in Port Rush. The blue pool is a natural formation of rocks that almost make a, a natural pool. And when tide's in, it is full and it's very deep. I think they call it the blue pool because that's the color you turn when you get into the water up there. And, but all of us young people as teenagers, we didn't mind how cold it was. We were diving and jumping and swimming and enjoying the day. But among us, there was a, a Jamaican girl. Uh, when she got into the water, she couldn't swim and she didn't turn blue. She went gray. And uh, she, Dorothy, held to the side of the pool. And one of her company said to me, Victor, why did you take Dorothy across the pool? Well, I can swim for myself, but I'd never tried to take anyone anywhere in the water. But I didn't want to say no, so I tried to take Dorothy across the pool, swimming on her back and holding onto her. But when I got to the middle of the deep pool, Dorothy panicked and grabbed me around the throat. And before I knew it, I was onto the waves. People were jumping into the water to rescue Dorothy. And when we come up again, they grabbed her, but I went down the second time. I was 18 years of age. I felt that my life was, was over when I came up the third time, people were still trying to get to me, but I went down the third time, and someone from somewhere came below me and pushed me up out of the water, onto the rocks, away from the shore. And I remember laying, lying limp on those rocks and water pouring out of my mouth. By this time, a crowd had gathered, and among the crowd was a, a Christian doctor, Dr. Love, from the Victoria Hall in Belfast. And they threw out a lifeline and brought the belt, and I was brought ashore. And I still remember Dr. Love giving me what they call artificial respiration as he pumped. I think I must have put out about half of the Atlantic just spouting it out. 
Before long, a blue bell was there, and uh, I was rushed off to Coleraine Hospital. It was in Coleraine Hospital those four days that God spoke to me and said, Victor, you're a Christian, but your life was almost over. What about the rest of your life? And although I knew Jesus Christ as personal Savior and engaged so much in Christian work, yet on that hospital bed as best I knew how, I surrendered everything to Jesus. Lord, anything, anywhere, at any time, with any cost. And here we are tonight, 65 years later. And I've got to say with William Borden, no reserves, no retreats, definitely no regrets. What about you tonight? Faithful to the obligations of the gospel because of the Lord above him. Listen. He was faithful to the obligations of the gospel, not only because of the Lord above him, but because of the lost around him. The lost. Oh, my friend, can I just remind you that beyond the precincts of this church, there are lost people. Maybe there are people in our meeting tonight, and you're lost. You've never come to Christ. Uh, can I say, you are the lost sheep for whom the shepherd came. He's seeking for you. He wants to save you. He wants to give to you eternal life. But getting back to what I say, beyond the precincts of this church, my friend, you're entering the mission field. Lost people all around us. Every day we pass them by. We see it in their eyes. They're lost, aimless. We hear it in their conversation. We see it in their values. They have nothing else to live for but things. My friend, have you thought of the lost around you? When I became a Christian in the post office, there were 70, I was a telegram boy, and there were 70 telegram boys. And one of the things that held me back from being a Christian was the fear of what people would say. They would ridicule me, make fun of me. And the night I was converted, that Sunday night, I was afraid to go into work the next day for there were 70 telegram boys. And if I told 70 telegram boys I'd become a Christian, why they would mock me. They would say, Maxie, come on, sing as a chorus. Maxie, do this, do. I went to work the next morning. I didn't have to tell 70. I only told two or three, and within 10 minutes, all 70 knew about it. Did they laugh? Did they make fun? Many did. But many others came and said, God bless you, Victor, I wish it was me. And over the next few years, the next four years, I had the joy of pointing some of those telegram boys, postmen, to faith in Christ. And some of them became missionaries and ministers of the gospel of the Savior. I'll tell you, it always pays to take your stand for Jesus. Paul, faithful to the obligations of the gospel, to the Lord above him, to the lost around him, to the friends all around him. My friend, thank God for Christian fellowship. As I've already said this evening, for those who've held the ropes for us as missionaries for many years. Let me just say something else. Paul was not only faithful to the obligations of the gospel, 
Paul was flexible to the opportunities of the gospel. He says these words, I am ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome also. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Paul was not only ready to preach, but when you read Philippians chapter 1, you'll find he says, I am ready to suffer. You see, when Paul said that he wanted to go to Rome where he would have fruit, he wanted to go to Rome to preach. It is amazing. He wanted to go as a preacher. Do you know how he got to Rome? As a prisoner. He got to Rome as a prisoner. He went in chains. My friend, when, when we say that there are no reserves, you don't know what way God will lead you. But the important point is to come and surrender all to Jesus Christ, whatever, wherever, whatever the cost. David Livingstone prayed and said, Lord, any place that you choose, to any work that you indicate, with any burden that you lay upon me, the only thing I ask is that you be with me. And he was. The opportunities. I remember many years ago, James and Dory Gunning, a young couple of, I say young couple, they're now with the Lord, but when they were a young couple, they gave up their home in Newtonards to go to Brazil. It wasn't easy for Dory Gunning. As I said, she had had a good home, a good job. James was a foreman joiner in Walker's Mill in Newtonards. But they gave it all up. And when they got to Brazil on a little river steamer, James and Dory sat on top of the cargo for 48 days in the tropical sun, heading up the river Perus to a town called Santa Madureira. They were to serve the Lord there for many years. But when they came home, uh, I think around 1979-80, to retire, James, 65, 67 years of age, But at that age, they couldn't retire. They felt they had to go back. And so at almost 70 years of age, they went back to Brazil. And when they got back to Brazil, João Mourinho, one of our Brazilian pastors at that time, João Mourinho had a miraculous conversion. Every conversion is miraculous, but an amazing conversion. He'd come from the northeast of Brazil, 3,000 miles away, as a rubber soldier during the war. He had volunteered, sorry, didn't volunteer, conscripted to the army, and where many Brazilians were sent to Italy, he was sent to the Amazon to bring out rubber for the Allied cause. The war was over, and he had to remain in the Amazon. His wife got cerebral malaria and was never the same again, and he was there. But when his wife died, he said to James, who was now 75, 76 years of age, I feel I need to go back to the northeast of Brazil to evangelize my family. Would you go with me? James and João Mourinho used to meet every morning at half past five to pray. And James said, we'll go. And so it was, they went to the northeast of Brazil to a little town called Campo Redondo. And when they got there, they had no house. A lady who was out of town for three months gave them their house and James and Dory were there. Dory said, not only did the visitors stand at the window and watch them, 
living. I mean, going to bed, the people could watch them going to bed. But, but not only people, but rats running all over rafters and over floors. And it wasn't easy. But James and Dory felt they should stay on in that town. They got money left to them in a will. They bought a little house. They worked at the church. And God bless, as a matter of fact, on the outskirts of the town, they built another church. And then to a neighboring village, they built another church. And after eight years, James, now well in his 80s, felt their time was up. They'd bought, at that time, a Chevette car. It was only two years old. James and Dory walked out of the house and out of, left the car. They gave the keys of the car to the pastor. They gave the keys of the house to the church and turned their back on it all. Not a penny taken. And they come home. We were in Templemore Hall because our girls were doing university and we felt that we should go back to Brazil. So Audrey and I went back to Brazil in 95 to go to the northeast of Brazil and help open up that area for the gospel. James and Dory had gone to one town, Campo Redondo. But when I got there and saw the possibility, I mean, in Rio Grande do Norte, the state, there are 165 towns and less than 60 of them had an evangelical witness. So I spoke to a pastor and I said, can we work with you? And so we began to work with him. And today we have 17 pastors in 17 towns in the northeast of Brazil taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, all because a couple were ready to go where God sent. Paul, I am faithful to the obligations of the gospel. I am flexible to the opportunities of the gospel. Now listen to these words as I close. I am fearless to the opposition of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was going to Rome, the citadel of power. It would be there that Paul would be beheaded. It was there that Peter would be crucified. But Paul says, I'm going to Rome. Listen, he is facing the citadel of power of the Roman Empire. But he knew a greater power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Political power is nothing to the mighty power of our God. And he did go. My friend, can I say this evening, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Not ashamed of it because of its person. It is the gospel of Christ. Because of its power, it is the power of God, the power behind the resurrection. Not ashamed of it because of its plan to everyone that believeth. But over the years, we've seen the mighty power of the gospel work so, so amazingly. In Kanotama, where we worked, our next-door neighbor was a murderer, the man most feared in town. And yet to see him bow the knee and Eufrazio was his name, receive Christ and his wife Amelia and then right through that family, oh, the mighty power of God saving them. In the town of Kanatama, one weekend that I'd gone back for the preaching and an opening of a new church. The church was packed, they had windows with no glass in them, people standing outside all the windows and people in the street. 
Over that weekend, more than 20 people trusted Christ the Savior, but I didn't know that in the meetings was a, a new Spanish priest, Padre Felipe. We only learned later that he left that Saturday night meeting and he went to another Spanish priest and he said, if what I heard tonight is true, I need to be saved. He went to the chapel that night, got down before the altar, called upon God and asked the Lord Jesus to come into his heart. We didn't know anything about this. The next morning, he got up in the chapel and he told the people what happened to him. And he told them he was going to leave the priesthood to become a preacher of the gospel. We, we didn't know anything. I left the town in a small airplane on Monday morning, but the pastor contacted me to say the priest came. In those little towns, the lights went out every night at nine o'clock. Everybody goes to their hammock. But the priest came down to the pastor's house and told him what had happened. I called upon God, can you teach me the Bible? And for the next three weeks, nine o'clock every night, the pastor and the priest were at the word of God down through the book of Hebrews. Trusted Christ. Let me finish by telling this story. Many years ago, we went to the town of Tarawaka, 2,800 miles up the Amazon. Missionaries had never been there before until Tom and Ethel Geddes had received an invitation from the government for Tom to go there as a medical doctor. Tom, a doctor and a surgeon, but he still was learning the language, so he arrived in March one particular year, and Audrey and I went to visit them in the month of August. When we saw the opportunities of this town, I mean, no one preaching the gospel why, although we were on a visit, we, we took graphs and we went down by the riverside and had gone door to door inviting people along. And the first day, we had about 40 boys and girls. The next day, over 100 people gathered out, hungry to hear. And day after day that week, Audrey and I were supposed to go back to Boca do Acre, two hours flight away. But when we saw the opportunities of the gospel, we felt we should do something to help Tom and Lucy, uh, Tom and Ethel. So Audrey stayed on. This was the end of August. Audrey stayed on while I went back to Boca do Acre, two hours flight away. That was September, October. Audrey conducted studies in the life of the Virgin Mary for the ladies of the town, women's meetings. Tom got an old house, whitewashed the inside walls, knocked down walls, whitewashed the inside, and this old house up in stilts. And then I got word in November, already been there, remember, from August, I got word in November that our little girl had whooping cough, and so I, I went back to Tarawaka. When I got there and saw the results of Audrey's Bible studies and the opportunities, we felt we should do something. So I spent a week making benches. I had been a postman, never made benches in my life before, but I made benches for that, those meetings. We got them into the old house, and we said we would start on a Sunday night. Now, the Catholic Novena starts at 6 o'clock and ends at 7 o'clock, and the people were pouring out of the Catholic Novena, and it's not far from our church, old church, old house building. So I stood in the street, almost like a policeman on points duty, just showing the people this way, and they all filed into the church, and the church was packed out. And for a week, we preached the gospel, every bench full and holy, people sitting on the floor, children sitting around my feet, until my back was to the wall. And during that week, 16 people trusted Christ. Among them was a girl called Iolanda, 16 years of age. Iolanda 
went home to tell her mother that she had become a Christian. I said home. Home was a shack uh, built over a swamp. Boards missing on the floor and boards missing on the walls and covered over with palm leaves. It was poverty. But worse than that, when she told her mother she had become a Christian, it was very embarrassing because her mother, Maria Espanol was the mother's name. Her mother was a prostitute. Can you imagine a 16-year-old girl going in to tell her mother, I've become a Christian? And especially when Yolanda said to her, would you come to the meetings, mom? No way. Prostitute? No, I couldn't go. But the church prayed. And Yolanda prayed. And Yolanda persisted, mom, would you come? And after a month, Maria Espanol came to the church. And that night she trusted Christ as Savior. In a simple way, simple woman. When she got saved, Ethel Geddes said to Tom, Tom, we've got to do something for this woman. She, she's a prostitute. She can't go back to that life. So Tom gave her a job in the hospital washing linens, whites. And that was a big aluminium pot out in the hot sun over an open fire, boiling them and stirring them. It was hard work. But there she was every night with her Bible at our prayer meeting, Bible study. She was there. After two years, she got a job, a little lighter, in the kitchen. Now, this wasn't a fancy hospital, incidentally. This hospital was built up in stilts. We had 13 beds. I think we had six rooms in it and uh, open windows, no glass in the windows and many holes in the, in the wood, on the floor. It was a dilapidated building. But Miriam became a cook. And also, when, when the lights went out at 9 o'clock at night, Tom and I went down to do the ward round. But we always took revolvers with us because there were rats everywhere and dead I think we were trying to kill the rats. Maria was at Cook for two years and then one day Tom came home and said, we need a nurse. Now, there weren't nurses from Northern Ireland that were trained in the Royal or somewhere like that. You had to train the nurse. You had to teach them how to take a pulse, how to take blood pressure. You gave them an orange and taught them how to give an injection. So when Tom came home one day and said, we, we need a nurse, Ethel said, what about Maria? Maria, Maria can't even count. Ethel says, I'll teach her to count. So Ethel taught her to count. Om, dois, tres, quatro. And some nights Maria would say, what comes after four? What comes after four? Ethel slapped her wrist and said, five. That's it, five. And within a month she learned to count. She became a nurse. Now she wouldn't be the sort of nurse you would want at your hospital. I remember one day, uh, I... Tom used to introduce the anesthetic and I looked after the anesthetic while Tom did the operation. I looked after the ether, the blood pressure, the pulse and made sure the patient stayed alive while Tom operated. After Tom operated one morning, he said to me, Victor, would you keep an eye on that patient because he had had a snake bite and Tom had just finished doing a skin graft. He said, make sure he doesn't disturb the wound. So, I looked after the patient for about 20 minutes. He didn't stir. And Tom said, time for the next operation. Come on, Victor. I said, what, what about the man? Get Maria to look after him. I said, Maria, would you look after this man? Make sure if he comes around, doesn't touch the wound, etc." Okay. Tom delayed, and I watched Maria, and she stood over the man like this white coat and hopped to the side a little bit. I said, Tom, come to your seat. 
Maria stood like this, and every time the man stirred and lifted his head, Maria just clouded him on the top of the head. And put, I don't think you would want a nurse like that. Eh? One day a fellow, he had been shot in the forest. And uh, if you're ill in the forest, they've got a superstition of an evil eye. And so that no one looks on you with an evil eye, they hide the patient. This fellow had been shot in the back of the leg and his leg was doubled up and it hit him for six months. And during those six months, not only had no one looked on him, but you don't get washed, no water must touch his body. For six months he hadn't been washed in the tropical heat. And so the leg was getting worse. It was almost a web of skin between the ball of the leg and the thigh. So they had to bring him six days by canoe to, to Tarawaka. When he got to Tarawaka, the first law of the hospital is that you've got to have a, a wash, a bath. So we brought him in that, that morning, and I was in the hospital in the afternoon, walking up the corridor, and just spied out of the corner of my eye, Maria with the man. sitting. The man was sitting on a stool in his birthday suit, and Maria was taking 20, uh, 20 liter tins of, of water and just pouring them over. Another 20 liters, and just over the top of the man. The poor man was like drowned at rot, but I wasn't going to get involved, so I just went on my way. That night, we went down to the hospital for the ward round, and when we got there, the poor man was sitting shivering on top of the bed. And Tom said, then what happened to you? He said, that nurse this morning nearly drowned me, but she couldn't get the dirt off. So she took Brillo pads, and Brillo pad me from, you wouldn't want a nurse like Maria. One day Tom came home and said to Ethel, we need a midwife. Ethel said, what about Maria? <laughs> Tom said, Maria? Yeah, Maria. Maria became a midwife. As a matter of fact, she became the best midwife in town. And when we all left Tarawaka in 1985, she continued as the best midwife in town. By this time, she got herself a proper little house. Now that she was the best midwife in town, she built an antenatal clinic as an extension to her home. And she did the confinement of many ladies in the town. The rich people sent their daughters and their wives to Maria Espanol. When she retired at 65 years of age, she turned the antenatal clinic into a, a prayer room. And where babies were born, now women were born again in that prayer room. Sadly, Maria died when she was 67 years of age. The former prostitute. I was back in Tarawaka doing special meetings for a special anniversary. And we, because we'd lived there for a number of years, our daughter was born in the town, therefore we knew the town. And walking around the town, I was surprised to see a brand new hospital. Brand new. Beautiful. But even more surprised when I read above the hospital... Dedicated to the memory of Maria Espanol. Isn't that amazing? A woman who'd been a prostitute on the streets of the town. Now remembered as one of the greatest citizens. Better still. The church in Tarawaka, which is the seedbed for many of the pastors and missionaries in the whole of the Acre. The church is packed. 
The pastor of the church, Pastor Wagner, is the grandson of Maria Espanol. That is why we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I leave it with you this evening. A debtor, an obligation, or sorry, faithful to the obligations of the gospel. Flexible in the opportunities of the gospel. Fearless in any opposition to the gospel. Let us pray. If there's a man, woman, young person in a meeting tonight and you're not a Christian, the same gospel of Christ can do the miracle in your heart. You can pass from death unto life this very night. The same obligations that constrained the Apostle Paul are upon all of us tonight, young and old. I wonder what our response may be. Can you use those words of Paul, I am, I am a debtor, I am ready, I am not ashamed, and write with William Borden, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Heavenly Father, bless this thy sacred word, we pray. And our Father, we pray that you will do your work in the hearts of all who are present here tonight. We thank you for the amazing grace of the gospel of Christ, for the day that you saved us and made us your own. Father, we pray that you will do the same for others this evening and help them to take that step to Christ. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. I'm looking for the hymn, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. And maybe I don't see it in the book. Or to defend his cause, maintain the honor of his word, the glory of the cross. Sorry? 389. I'm sorry, I should have looked that up before. 
Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing upon your word and upon this congregation. And our Lord, we ask of thee that you will help us that whatever God has said to us, not to harden our heart, but to surrender to your way. Accept our thanks now and take us to our homes in safety in thy fear and in thy peace. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.